the promise of scripture is that love casteth out fear. And, and I'm convinced that fear and love are enemies. They can't coexist. They're kind of like magnets. You know, you try to hold them together and they just push each other away. But we, we look and we can see what terrible things we do when fear is driving us rather than love. And we're, I think many of our policies right now in our country are being driven more by fear than by love. You're listening to Upside Down, a podcast on spirituality and culture. No topic is off limits, so join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. Welcome to episode 55 of Upside Down Podcast. I'm Lindsay Wallace, and I'll be your host for this last episode of season three. Before we get to our conversation, I want to remind you that we'll be taking the months of June, July, and August off from regular recordings. We do have a few special episodes planned for our Patreon supporters who support us at $10 or more a month. If you're not supporting our work at that level, head over to patreon.com slash upside down podcast and sign up. There is no shame in bumping your support for a few months in order to get those bonus recordings. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. In this episode, Kayla, Gina, and I talk with Shane Claiborne and Mike Martin about their recent book, Beating Guns. Walter Brueggemann referred to Shane and Mike's book as the quintessential pro-life book, and we could not agree more. For me, Shane's most endearing quality is not his surprising power on stage, his ability to recall statistics and historical data, or his natural writing talent. The most endearing quality about Shane is where he has chosen to live his life and his decades-long commitment to living on the margins. Shane is not just writing and talking about living like Jesus. He's actually doing it which for me gives him the authority to do the writing and speaking in the first place. You'll notice in this episode that Shane's audio is not great. And the reason for that is because he was in Nashville fighting against the execution of his friend Don Johnson. In typical Shane Claiborne fashion, he was walking the talk. Don was killed on May 23rd at 6.55 p.m. We dedicate this episode to him. Well, Shane and Mike, thank you for being with us today. I could definitely read your bios, but I'd prefer to just have you guys introduce yourselves and share your experience with guns. Maybe take us from growing up on into today. Great. Yeah, well, this is Shane. I, uh, I'm i the one with the southern accent, the southern charm. Uh, <laughs> Mike's got his own charm, but it's not Southern. Uh, I grew up down in Tennessee, and I grew up with uh, guns, hunting. I was pretty lethal to squirrels and uh, went hunting with my grandfather. And, and then I ended up moving to Philadelphia, where I've had a community for the last 20 years. And we've just seen too many people die from guns. And uh, that's really where my passion came from uh, initially, to start thinking about gun, gun violence. Um, was very very personal um and uh and then you know i i um the more we peeled away the layers we saw that you know some really disturbing things that christians evangelicals in particular own guns at a higher rate than the general population and that that you know kind of made sense to me growing up but uh as you look at it now it's we've got such a crisis in our country and you know, I really became convinced it's not just a gun crisis, but it's also a uh, a uh, spiritual crisis in the church, and that's mm-hmm. uh, 
where I really began teaming up with Mike. So I, you know, I grew up really comfortable with guns. And um, uh, as one young kid in our neighborhood said, it's confusing though in Philadelphia why we have so, so many gun shops when we don't have that many deer to hunt. Mm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. What about you? Yeah, I grew up uh, in a a Mennonite home and um, an evangelical kind of community here in Colorado Springs and some of its, I guess, not necessarily suburbs, but surrounding areas. And um, grew up target shooting every now and then, uh, never hunted. Um, I am a pretty good shot, but part of the question is, is that really something that I want to be pretty good at? Are there things that I could be, other things that are better for me to be pretty good at? Um, And so there's... uh, uh, I'd go paintballing a ton. Um, there's a guy outside of Colorado Springs that owns over 4,000 guns, and he's got uh, a gun shop and a shooting range and a paintball course. And I would go there with my friends and youth group all the time and, and be playing paintball, and at the same time hearing all the guns go off in the shooting range kind of right next door. And so it was easy to make the jump from um, playing capture the flag with paintball to feeling like you're actually um, planning to hurt somebody. So... Um, it, like Shane said, uh, Christians and evangelicals own, own guns at a higher rate than everybody else. And so it feels like we're wanting to be pretty good at the wrong things. And, uh, we need to imagine a different way forward with, uh, solving conflict. And that's, that's a lot of what raw tools does, um, is trying to exchange the tools for violence, for tools of, of creation and, uh, peaceful conflict resolution. Yeah, I love that. So you guys just wrote a book, Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. And you just came off of a, how many cities did you visit on your tour? I think it was 35 cities and okay. 37 stops. So a couple of them had, we had double days. Multiple. Days. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about Raw Tools and what, what you guys were doing on that tour? Yeah, so uh, Shane and I started working together about six years ago. And we um, organized these uh, events and and really uh, holy spaces they turned out to be when uh, we we worked through turning a a gun into a garden tool. And that process takes about an hour. And so while that's happening, we want to lift up the voices in the community that have been affected by gun violence. So that's victims, survivors, and sometimes offenders or or family of offenders. um, And hear those stories and hear from other organizations that are doing the work. Gun violence is such an intersectional issue that it speaks from the pain of a lot of other issues. So really allowing and cultivating a space where we can listen to that pain. Um, and then at there's a point in each stop where we invite those people who have shared those stories to bang on a gun and help us turn it into a garden tool and become a part of that process. And mm-hmm. so uh, mothers and, and fathers and and family members and friends and loved ones beat, take turns beating on that gun barrel. And uh, that really that's really when the event pivots um, from that weariness of violence and into a, a hopeful path forward. Um, and then we end and kind of present that tool. And usually that tool goes to work in that community cultivating life. Mm. I just love that imagery of turning those into something that can cultivate life. Um, one of the, there's the, the book I love, numbers so all the statistics um 
are are impactful, but the stories are obviously what really kind of help move conversations along. And Mike, you share in the book that um, your mother actually committed suicide. And suicide isn't often at the forefront of this conversation, but I was really shocked to read the numbers um, that go along with that um, as far as gun violence and how, how we don't talk about it. And so it, and it made me wonder um, if what you'd like to add as that being part of your story. Um, but I'd also like to hear you speak sort of to the healing power of physically beating guns into instruments of life and how that allows you to embody hope and transformation and then see it in others around the country as a result of the work that raw tools is doing. Yeah. So, um, suicide is two thirds of, of the gun violence in our country and it is an, uh, and often overlooked. It, do, it doesn't make the headlines. Um, and usually the, the things that we can do to help stop um, easy access to firearms um, are also the things that would help the other issues of gun violence. So if we really want to tackle the, the largest uh, segment of, of the reason for gun violence and suicide, then it would also have kind of a, uh, a ripple effect across the other issues as well. Um, over when you use a gun to attempt suicide, it's completed 90% of the time. And conversely, other methods average about 10 to 15% of a completion rate. And that what's really significant about that is that when you um, attempt suicide and are not successful, then uh, you are you are not likely to ever try again. And so the lethality of guns takes that to a whole nother level and being able to support and work towards healing with folks who have attempted that and survived. Um, my mom was one of the 10% that was successful um, with using her medication uh, to take her life. Um, but what I found out years later is that uh, we lived in a rural area at the time. And when the ambulance arrived to take her to the hospital, uh, she was still alive, but they had to wait for the sheriff to get there to clear the home of firearms. And so there was this kind of tangential connection to firearms after Raw Tools started. I didn't realize this, um, where, you know, the the first responders were there, but they couldn't go in for mm. 10, 15 minutes or so. We don't really know how long that was. My dad was a former EMT. He was there, and they were just waiting at the end of the driveway until um, the home was clear to firearms, whether they knew they were in there or not, it's a standard procedure. And it's a, it's a good procedure because at some point a first responder was hurt by somebody, um, who was in a suicidal, um, kind of, you know, frame of mind. And mm -hmm. that moved, that moved them to put in a good practice to protect their lives as well. And it would be good for the rest of our community to also move in that direction. So, um, and one of the things that that's kind of, work showed itself in raw tools is a lot of the individual guns that we get donated to us have been used in a suicide. And even, mm. even folks on the tour, um, one, one woman donated a gun and there was still a blood stain on it from, uh, her husband who was in the military and was dealing with PTSD. Um, and so she came and, and she watched that gun be turned into a garden tool. And I think that there's something, you know, it's hard to put your finger on to really define exactly what's happening. I think partly people are different parts in their grief process when they're taking on this uh, transformation and it's more than metal that's being transformed, but we're being invited into this hopeful space into a place where 
we're using tools that that really cultivate each other instead of uh, tear each other down. And it really is a movement from power over to power under. And I think that's really what Swords to Plowshares is about. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so one of the things that you guys outline in the book is what I call ludicrous, but like just these crazy regulations are really lack of regulations and laws with regards to guns. I mean, you just gave an example of one that makes sense, right? That first responders wouldn't want to enter into a building if there was someone inside with a firearm. But I was just shocked at all of the examples. And one that you guys gave is that if someone shoots you in the eye with a Nerf gun, you can sue Nerf. But if you get shot with a regular gun, then then gun manufacturers are not held responsible. And so I just wonder, I mean, you could talk about maybe some more examples, because I think oftentimes when even the word gun or the topic of guns come up and we talk about common sense reform, it's a very, I mean, you guys know this, it's super polarized and people immediately jump to, you want to take my rights away. And I just wonder, like, how did we get here? Like, could you give us some historical context? Like, how did we get to this place where um, Nerf has more regulations than regular guns? Well, what, what we've seen is that uh, there are a f- few gun owners that you might call gun extremists uh, because they're the the one of the things that we found that was really important is that an um, overwhelming majority of gun owners want to see change happen in this country. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like you know, over three quarters of gun owners want to see things like what you just mentioned change. Things like assault weapons or a limit to how many guns you can own or some kind of training or you know not having access if you're convicted with a violent crime or domestic abuse. You really, that's what when people say common sense laws. But we have that whole section you're talking about of our book called Gallery of the Absurd. Mm-hmm. It, just, it shows how... Um, uh, unreasonable our th- those you know f- uh, gun extremists be, are and and just to to put a little light on that when we think about the NRA they say that they the National Rifle Association that they represent five million people what that means is that over ninety percent of gun owners are not affiliated with the NRA and in fact uh, a, a majority of them find themselves at odds with the um, uncompromising ideology of the NRA. That's where that's really the, the the fact is that they don't represent many gun owners, but they do own a lot of politicians, and they've helped shape a lot of the policies uh, in our country and um, uh, or the lack of policies, you know. Um, and and so things like not having to report stolen guns. That's a crazy thing that you, mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, and guns are stolen all the time, you know. Um, and and you you uh, think things like uh, there's cities where you are actually required by law to own a gun, you know. Um, so those things make the old the, the the cut for the gallery of the absurd. But one of those, you know, you mentioned is the immunity that is um, exploited. Uh, mm-hmm. really by the, the gun industry and the gun, gun profiteers. That's what we really look at is Henry Ford said, if you want to um, uh, know how to stop violence, then look at who profits from violence. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and so, you know, when people say, well, the only answer to our gun problem is more guns, you know, a, a good guy with a gun to stop, stop a bad guy with a gun, it, it sounds suspiciously like someone that's just out to sell guns, you know, like it's like, right. 
more 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 whiskey will solve your drinking problem or something. So, but the immunity is so important because this is what has allowed the gun industry to be untouchable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can't sue gun companies. You can't even sue a a gun a distributor. You know, like say I went into a uh, rental car place and I was inebriated and they rented a car to me and I drove out and hit someone. Then you could sue the rental car company, but you can't do that. Um, with a, a gun company, you know, they, they, they have this immunity that is actually written into the law. Um, and that's why guns ha- uh, are, have less regulations than toy guns. Toy guns have three different types of regulations to make sure they're safe. And yet the, the instrument that is actually designed to, to, to kill um, has the least regulations on it. I mean, you even think about a car. Cars aren't designed to kill, but they, they can kill. And we, we've created all kinds of different ways to try to protect life, you know, to where you have to pass a driving test. You can't drink and drive. As the technology gets faster, you know, our, we have speed limits and, you, you know, new laws like you can't text and drive. And all that's designed to protect life. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you make a mistake driving a car and you, you, you can lose your license, but, um, you know, that, that's, what's really unique and so troubling about the gun industry is, is that it, it has this, uh, uh, unprecedented immunity legally. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard you kind of touch on the, and what I think is the answer to my next question in terms of who's profiting from it. But when you went, I was shocked to learn that 90% of gun owners are not members of the NRA because that's all you hear about from like a news perspective is, is the NRA and how, and they're very loud. And so my question is why haven't things changed? And I suspect if we follow the money, we'll figure that out, but I'd love to hear your answer to that. Sure. I can start on that. Mike might have some thoughts too, but the, the, the one simple answer is that, the, the one thing that the NRA does really well is that they are very actively engaged with politicians. And there's a poll that we cite that shows how much more often uh, NRA members have contacted their um, legislators and things like that. And, and so we tend to just kind of uh, be fairly complacent with a lot of things. And, you know, Mike and I are really clear that we don't think legislation is the only solution to this. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we could get rid of all guns and we'd find ways to kill people, you know, but um, uh, it, it, there's, there's technology that could protect lives like uh, smart gun technology, fingerprint technology that would only allow it to be operated by the person who owns it, things like that. But the fact is, yeah, that, that a lot of these things haven't even been explored, um, not because we don't have the capacity or the knowledge, but because we don't have the willpower, or you might say the incentive, because it's mm-hmm. been blocked. Even access to information has been blocked. Research has been blocked by the NRA. Um things that would research what might save lives. It's very similar to how the tobacco industry um, uh, at one point blocked almost all cancer research because they Mm. didn't want to show something that would hurt their business. Um, And we're we're in a very similar situation with guns where the gun industry has held a lot of us hostage. And and that's why we we frame this as really a pro-life issue, that abortion is not the only pro-life issue. But if we if we care about life, then we should care about gun violence. It's, it's the number one cause of death of African-American young people. And it's the number two cause of death of all of our young people. Um, out of uh, all the ki- kids killed in industrialized countries, um, 87% of those are here in the United States. 
man, I just think about that. And I'm so glad you said that, Shane, that this is such a pro-life issue. And as I was looking at your book, you know, I was looking at who endorsed it and what they said. And we love Walter Brueggemann on this podcast. And I love that he said that this is the quintessential pro-life book if there ever was one. <laughs> and, and it's so true. And it, these statistics and these numbers are just shocking. And, and Mike, I'm, I'm curious to know, too, from you as well, how do you how do you not become numb to all of the hopelessness that you guys found as you were? Well, I think you know, there's several stories in there that we talk about. Uh, Charletta Evans is one of the people that has given me the hope that she's she lost her son when he was three years old about 20 years ago, and um, some other kids, just teenagers trying to impress a local gang, did some random drive-by shootings and. Um, his car was in front of one of the houses and he was actually sleeping when he was shot. Um, but she has since gone through a restorative justice process and met with, um, the kids, uh, who, who took her son's life. And, you know, this past week was mother's day and part of her process was, um, accepting it kind of like a, an informal mother role to the, to the person who pulled the trigger that shot the bullet that took her kid's life. And so she regularly meets with him, um, talks with him, is actively um, testifying for him to have an opportunity for parole that's coming up in a couple years and for his release to to be a constructive citizen in society and really um, take on, do the things that her son isn't able to do right now. So um, for her, it wasn't just losing her son's life, but also, you know, his life has been stopped as well because he's um, in prison and unable to contribute to to the society out here. And so when I hear stories like that, um, it really helps pull me out of kind of this um, pigeonhole where we just kind of debate with each other. But when you hear these stories, it really personalizes all these, uh, the data and statistics and really shows a pathway forward. Uh, Raw Tools does a lot of things through the restorative justice lens to see how can we can repair the harm. And really the, the main question is, can can guns be a part of repairing the harm when we transform them into something else to support initiatives like Charletta's or um, the other the other localized groups that are doing a lot of work in their context to stop gun violence? I think of um, Live Free and the Pico Network do a lot of great stuff, Mike McBride, and using the idea of the Boston Miracle where faith leaders are going in and identifying um, the people in their community, um, gang leaders or people who are suspect or kind of on the fence of joining those networks and really investing the money to be in relationship with them and, and help give them the resources resources that they need um, that they may not have access to or just might not be aware of uh, to be to be the you know have gainful employment and that's a that's another problem the systemic structures are creating the opportunity for violence and that we need to address those and Charlotte's story does that so well yeah. Mike, could you speak a little bit about the Raw Power workshops and what those are like? Yeah, so Raw Tools has three programs areas. One is turning guns into garden tools, and the second part is training for war no more. So these Raw Power workshops are tailored to different communities. Uh, we're doing them along the front range here in Colorado. We go to youth groups. We go to ch- like a multi-generational group at different churches, or we've been in kind of corporate professional settings where we have a dozen to two dozen people sit around. And sometimes it's listening to stories of nonviolence that are active stories, people stepping into confrontation and being able to deescalate them, 
sometimes it's being more aware of your neighborhood, uh, mental health first aid. So if you see somebody in the middle of a crisis, having the tools and being able to help deescalate um, their emotions and get them to somebody or um, some place where they can be safe and get the help that they need. Um, so these workshops kind of take on different uh, facets and they really introduce people to ways that other tools um, that that help us solve our conflict. Yeah. And is that something people who you people bring you out so someone can con- yeah, reach out to you and say, hey, we want to we want to bring you out to do this kind of thing? Right. Yeah. So one time we went to a church in Fort Collins and as part of the, their morning worship, we turned a gun into a garden tool. And then we had a Q&A over lunch after that. And basically the question that kept coming up is if I don't have a gun to defend myself, what then do I use? Mm-hmm. And we went back there a month later and did some nonviolence workshops with them to give them tools to kind of fill that uh, void that they feel was left when they gave up their guns. And so it's really a question of the example that Jesus showed us that he'd be willing to die for people, but not willing to kill for people. And I think that's the narrative that we hear, you know, that you won't get this gun except out of my cold dead hands, that we'd rather die for that gun than we would die for mm-hmm. each other. And, and it's really this, this, uh, it feels like it could be that hopeless cycle that you were talking about earlier, but when we hear these stories like Charlotte's or listen to the stories that we tell in these nonviolence workshops of, of nonviolent ways where we're not hurting each other, but we're still solving conflicts and we're still repairing harm and we're moving forward in a much more hopeful and much less weary way. Yeah. People often talk about freedom or their right to own guns. But what I hear you guys asking is, is that really freedom or, you know, or is the freedom or is freedom the ability to live unarmed and fearless and I think you guys say this in the book, like refusing to fight violence on its own terms and really asking like, what is the third way, right? Like how would Jesus handle this? I mean, those are, those are kind of us. Uh, yeah. you know, some of our words are clunky, like uh, freedom and justice. Cause you can say that and, and mean very different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, like I, I know folks, that, so I, I don't want anything to do with church cause I just want to be free. You know, I don't want to have, and, and you realize like sometimes we're controlled by, our anger or our lust and we think that we're free but we need you know we need some holy habits and we need God to help us with that and and I think for when it comes to like the idea of freedom it can be abused so that we you know one person's freedom encroaches on another person's freedom to to flourish um and in, interestingly enough uh, the the author uh, James Madison who helped author the second amendment he said uh, liberty can be endangered by the abuse of power, but liberty can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty. It's a really powerful statement to think that he said that. And like literally, uh, you know, the, the the right of a handful of people to own AR-15s, you know, military style assault rifles that are designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible is we that is infringing on many people's right to go safely to school and to go to concerts and movies. And, you know, this is the weapon of choice of mass shooters. And do we really need guns that can shoot 100 rounds in a minute? Mm -hmm. You know, when the Second Amendment was written, uh, guns. Um, shot like one or two rounds in a minute. And so we're, we, we really 
you know, uh, I think some of the authors of the Second Amendment would be pretty appalled with what we've come to consider well regulated. <laughs> like, there's a guy in Colorado we write about that has, you know, over 4,000 guns. And, and uh, uh, you're like, man, that's, uh, you know, th- 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 I'm pretty sure that's not what they had in my- mind mm-hmm. when they were talking about our, our right to bear arms. Yeah. Yeah. Shane, we talk a lot on this podcast about the third way of Jesus. And uh, a lot of that we've learned from you, but you have a chapter in the book called The Third Way of Jesus. And I think it's something our listeners really resonate with. And I want to just read a, a short paragraph and then get your take, both of you, what this means in real life. So um, it says, The kind of love takes courage. It's willing to risk death rather than take someone's life. This love is not sentimentality, but the kind of love Dorothy Day spoke of, saying it is such a harsh and dreadful thing to ask of us, but it's the only answer. The thing, the only thing harder than hatred is love. The only thing harder than war is peace. Until the courage that we have for peace surpasses the courage that we have for war, violence will continue to triumph in imperial execution rather than divine resurrection will always have the final word. And I just feel like that is such a powerful statement. And I would love for you guys to speak into kind of the faith element. Like why do we as believers, uh, members of God's upside down kingdom, people of the third way, like why does this matter in such a guttural level? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're building on lots of the wonderful uh, people that have worked on this, Walter Wink, and um, you know who kind of coined the third way phrase. But uh, um, and Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day. There's so many, you know, Oscar Romero and Gandhi. But you know, it, it goes back to Jesus, really, who we we believe fundamentally shows us. Um, a way to transcend evil without mirroring it. Um, it sh- Jesus shows us that people that want to hurt us can be resisted without being emulated. That you know, um, we—it's um, neither submission nor assault, neither fight nor flight. So that kind of um, way of Jesus that is neither passivity or violence, but it says you know there's a way to transcend evil without becoming evil and and I think that's what what a lot of violence is built around I mean I'm, I'm in the Tennessee right now um, trying to work against an execution two days from now of a friend of mine and but it's it's justified by folks that use the Bible in a in, as a weapon really and they, you know the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and so I think Jesus challenges that and and i think we misunderstand that law to begin with you know but i think jesus you know he says you've heard it said an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth but i tell you a better way and uh and it doesn't get any better than when jesus's own disciple picks up a sword to protect him you know peter cuts a guy's ear off and and jesus's response is to rebuke peter he's very harsh he says you know put that away you pick up the sword you die by the sword um we don't live that way and, um, and then he heals the guy that Peter wounded. And Tertullian and the early Christians understood that so beautifully. They said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian. And it's a powerful word because what they were saying is, you know, if ever there was a case to use violence to protect the innocent, then Peter had the strongest case in the world. But Jesus is showing us a love that is willing to die, but not willing to kill. And I think that's the difference of the types of power that we see contrasted between the cross 
and the and, and the the gun or the sword, a weapon. So we one one says there's something worth dying for, and the other says there's something worth killing for. Mm, that's so good. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think the greatest power of of nonviolence is kind of holding a mirror to the violence and showing showing the violence what it really is. And I think one of the it's not an often talked about parable where he talks about carrying the pack an extra mile. So when the Roman soldier asks you to carry a pack for a mile, take it further that you know when when your legal obligation is up, show them that you're willing to still help them and real and that really puts turns the tables and puts the 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 onus on that soldier to say, am I really going to make this person or have this person carry more than what they're willing to, uh, or what the, the law tells them to. And so when you say that you're willing to do more than the law, like that, in that case, it's, it's really kind of putting the mirror to the system and showing, yeah, I'm, I'm bigger than the system, that the system doesn't have control of me. Um, and that when we use violent, violent laws like that, that impose force on somebody else, um, it really kind of, disempowers them but when nonviolence really empowers that soldier then to make a choice if they're going to continue to do that um or if they're going to take that backpack back and and continue on their way and so i i love the the kind of exposure making something that might be implicit and and turning it into explicit that we have to define the violence and name it for what it is and for me that's what Jesus did on the cross that he absorbed that pain and showed the system what it really does. Um, And they had plenty of examples. We knew that people get put on the cross. Jesus wasn't the only one, one hanging on that cross, but we see that even the centurion there said, surely this was the King. And so it's, Mm -hmm. it's really about trying to, you know, make the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what should, we should be pretty good at. We don't need to be good target shooters. We can be pretty good at making, uh, the the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and and for for us and raw tools you know it's really about developing those tools instead of tools that that bring death and that use power over people to accomplish things. You know, in the in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us three really stark images of of the third way, and one is you know turn the other cheek and. Um, uh, really by by not running or fighting back but looking the person in the eyes and you know kind of transcending their violence but not cowering down either and there's a you know a lot more to unpack from that but then you know if you get sued in court and someone sues you for the coat off your back then take off your undergarments and give it all to them to expose their greed you know it's really beautiful so he's showing us you know if someone that soldiers make you walk a mile with them then just walk two miles with them and you know so all of those are ways to really uh um wear them down with our love as i think dr king said you know and and that's mm-hmm. that's what uh you know to to wear evil down with love and um um so that that uh, idea of the third way i think it's so important uh, in our world right now because we see that people that use violence also suffer from violence and mm-hmm. that became very real for us on the tour when we saw so many many military service members that have been traumatized by violence that then you know you look at many of the mass shootings and many of the 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 trauma that people have passed on from experiencing violence themselves and the number one cause of death of military service members is not combat but it's suicide by gun more more folks are dying from their own guns than from enemy combatant guns and and that is wrenching. I mean, almost mm-hmm. one military service member an hour takes their own life. 
and much of that is related to the experiences of of what they've seen in war and how they've been um, devastated by it. So we really believe that the gun hurts people on both sides of it. Yeah, definitely. I think a common thread, and this is kind of, I think it's the same paragraph that Kayla just quoted from, but the common thread is we have to have the imagination, right, to not fight violence with violence, but that also takes courage. And you brought up Dr. King. I mean, he was quite aware of the situations and the circumstances that he was putting himself in, but he was committed. He had an imagination to see the world in a different way. But I think you guys are really um, real about this in the book, like to not pick up a gun, to not keep a gun in your house for self-defense, like that also takes courage. And so I don't know if you have a story from someone that you met on tour or even your own story to share, but that really struck me in the book that, um, like it's not, the answers aren't easy per se. Um, and Shane, maybe this is a good, one of the stories that really resonated with me was the vigil that y'all held outside of the shooter shop. Maybe you could share that story. I think it kind of ties in. Sure. Yeah. Well, briefly, we, we had had a young man who was killed in our neighborhood, Papito. He was 19 years old. And so we had begun, you know, there, there comes a point where uh, Dr. King said, we're called to be the Good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch on the road to Jericho, you know, talking about the Good Samaritan story. But then he says, but then we have to ask, what can we do to repair the road to Jericho? What, like, How can we reimagine the road to Jericho so people don't keep landing there? So after Papito died, we started thinking, where are all the guns coming from? Let's try to figure out the water source that's flooding our you know, neighborhood with gun violence. Mm-hmm. And for- Three blocks away was one of the worst gun shops in the country. Um, and it's important that f- um, 5% of gun shops, 5% are responsible for 90% of the crime guns, the guns that are tracked to violent crimes. And so that that's part of the problem is we can't, I, we don't exactly know which ones those are, but we knew that this one was because of one study. And so we gathered there outside the vigil and we weren't actually trying to sh- shut it down. We were asking the owner to voluntarily sign on to a 10-point code of conduct that would um, uh, 300 mayors against gun violence thought, you know, you know, agreed would cut down gun violence. So there we are, we're vigiling, mm-hmm. you know, and these these pro-gun activists show up and they're they're very rude, they're yelling, they're yelling insults. But we had grounded ourselves in, in prayer and also in a pledge of nonviolence. So when they started hurling insults, we, um, we, we began to say the Lord's Prayer. And it just kind of spontaneously came to us. We just thought we don't want to yell over them. Let's just pray. So we started praying the Lord's Prayer. And then as we're praying it, they started um, really like yelling over it, singing um, God Bless America. And it, it really felt like one of the, the, the those times in my life where I felt spiritual warfare. You know, it really felt like as they're drowning out our Lord's Prayer with God Bless America, it really... You, you have this stark sense that we're not just dealing with people, we're dealing with some deep principalities and powers, and our love of guns has become, uh, and even sometimes our love of, of, of um, America only, you know, America first, mm-hmm. has, has become a form of idolatry where we're, we do a lot of really terrible things uh, to other people um, because of our um, raising our guns above life or our own country above others or whatever, you know, so that, that's, uh, that, that became real. And, 
you know, it was, we came back and debrief with our young guy, you know, some of the young men on my block, which, um, I, you know, I, I, I was I was a little nervous as these guys are insulting me that my you know that my my young guys on the block would uh, keep a presence of nonviolence you know and they were amazing (laughs) we came back and we said what did you learn and you know what they said first thing they said was we learned what it must have felt like for Dr. Martin Luther King and why he was so committed to this nonviolence and that's it's exactly right you know Dr. King said I've seen too much hate to hate. We don't use the same. In fact, when he uh, when he gave up his gun, he at one point owned a gun, and he said, "I realized we cannot use the same weapons as our oppressors." And that's where he said, "Love is our greatest weapon, and that we wear evil down with love. And you can kill us, and we will still love you. You can burn down our houses, and we will still love you. You can." threaten our kids, squirt us with water hoses and put dogs on us and we will still love you, but we will wear you down by our love. Mm. Shane, this is Gina. I think as I'm listening to you talk, I'm reminded of something that I also realize in my life, which is people who don't necessarily own guns or, you know, support violence, right? A lot of people will support war. And I think I've come to realize that's fear-based, like that's because if we don't kill them, they're going to come and kill us, right? Or we have to protect ourselves. And I guess I'm wondering if you could say something about, um, I, I don't know, like how you encounter fear. Yeah, surely. We, we talk a whole lot about it in, our, in, in the book because it, it, it is, as you track the roots of a lot of this, just like you said, you identify that fear is a part of what is compelling us to violence and to, you know, uh, think that we're protecting ourselves with guns and um, and even who we're conditioned to fear. I mean, one of the studies that we cite, the Cato Institute, it shows how irrational our fears are and that we're being right now especially conditioned and told to fear immigrants and refugees and these people, actually moms and kids, you know, at the border. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, that as if everybody is a part of the, the, uh, the gangs or something that come, you know. And so, like... Um, uh, th- this study showed that you are more. The, it listed all these things that are more likely to kill you than a refugee or immigrant, and they're things like swing sets and roller coasters. Uh, one of them is a, a cow, and this is the my, my favorite one: a vending machine falling on you mm. is more likely to kill you than an immigrant or refugee. You know, and so you you, you think of that, and you're like, well, we've been conditioned to fear, especially people who are um, different from us and people who have darker skin than us, and so. You look at most of the mass shooters, though, and they're overwhelmingly white males. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so as we, we think of that, uh, what terrorism looks like or how we kind of think of these things, our, our language conditions us to, to fear in a certain way. But the promise of Scripture is that love casteth out fear. And, and I'm convinced that fear and love are enemies. They can't coexist. They're kind of like magnets. You know, you try to hold them together and they just push each other away. Um, and, and, but we, we look and we can see what terrible things we do when fear is driving us rather than love. And we're, I think many of our policies right now in our country are being driven more by fear than by love. And a great question for any of us who seek to follow Jesus is, uh, is what would it look like to form our policies out of love rather than fear? Uh, and, and I think that, you know, if that was the framing uh, question for how we think about immigration or, um, you know, so many of these issues. But, uh, and Jesus's idea that we 
pick up the sword, do die by the sword is, has proved true when it comes to the big guns too. We talk about the like nuclear weapons and the arming of the world. And the United States, Dr. King called it the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. We have helped arm so much of the world, over 150 countries. So it's kind of like if I was selling guns in my neighborhood, but telling everybody they shouldn't shoot anyone, you know, and, and like literally mm. like when I was in Iraq as a Christian peacemaker, there were Iraqi folks that told me, well, you know, we have some weapons here because you have the receipts from them in your country. You know, like you sold mm. them, you, you sold Saddam Hussein the Bell helicopters that he gassed the Kurds with. And so that idea that you pick up the sword, you die by the sword, uh, we, we keep reliving it. I mean, you know, right now we we are still arming Saudi Arabia, you know, and, and uh, it, it just it boggles the mind that we haven't we, we've. We, we, we haven't learned that lesson, you know, so, but, you know, Jesus teaches us that, that other way that, uh, uh, we, we, we can live by the cross, not the sword. Yeah, that's great. So as we wrap up, I would love to hear, um, from both of you, just some practical next steps for listeners. Like, what do we do as individuals? Um, what do we do politically? Um, Mike, how do we get involved with what you're doing at Raw Tools and, and, you know, for listeners who own guns and would prefer to turn them turn them into plows, how do they go about doing that? So maybe some practical things that we can leave folks with. Yeah, so um, I'm in Colorado, and the STEM high school shooting is about 45 minutes north of us. Uh, where we're at, I had a, uh, a friend who was EMT who took one of the kids who survived, and he was one who lunged at the shooter when that happened. I have another mm-hmm. friend who's a pastor. At, a, at one of the closest church, so his per- parking lot turned into a place where parents would meet up with the kids um, and first responders would also be there. Um, so there's different levels wow. to support the folks who are doing that, um, especially if tragedy hits your neighborhood. But to, to reach out to your local organizations, if you do want to uh, uh, donate a gun, um, you can do that through our website. There's several buttons on various places to donate a gun or to become a part of the disarming networks that help facilitate those donations. So um, there's there's a lot of red tape, but the best way to get around all that is to educate people on how to disable those guns. And then you can mail them because they're just kind of scrap metal and, and plastic and wood, and we can repurpose those when they get to us. Um, we have churches and blacksmiths across the country that are helping us do that. So you might be from a place that already has kind of like a, a secondary raw tools location near you where we can uh, donate that gun there and process it. And if you donate a gun to us, you get a tool back uh, for free. And then we keep the remaining parts to to make more tools and, and support our work. Um, our book tour happened during Lent. And usually Lent is a time to um, let go of the things that are, are not cultivating mm-hmm. our life in our neighborhoods. And even if you're not sure you want to give up a gun, maybe you fast from that for six months to a year. Put it put it somewhere safe and locked and stored and see how your life changes without using that. See how that sparks your imagination on how you would solve conflict. I think we've idolized guns so much um, that we've stopped imagining Im- imagining alternative ways to solve conflict because we have that already. So we don't even think about that. It's really stunted our imagination. So um, yeah. you, know, you, can, you can find out more at rawtools.org and, and connect with connect with us there you know as we we traveled around uh, we saw the power of the the testimonials of people who have been directly impacted and i'm convinced that um 
sometimes what our biggest problem is, is not a compassion problem, but it's a geography problem and a relationship problem that we don't, um, until something hits us directly, um, sometimes we don't care. That's where I think I would encourage folks to really get involved with um, groups like Moms Demand Action and the Live Free Campaign and um, Journey of Hope and groups that have been impacted by gun violence um, and amplify those stories. Because we got to, if we're going to make gun violence history, we've got to make gun violence personal. Mm. And the other thought I, I would uh, have is I, I think we need to reframe the narrative that this is a pro-life issue and that abortion is not the only pro-life issue. It's an important one. But uh, and I care about uh, reducing and eradicating abortion. But the, the, the irony is that in America, you can be pro-gun, pro-war, pro-death penalty and still say you're pro-life as long as you are anti-abortion. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Be, be more accurate in saying I'm anti-abortion than pro-life. I think we really need a consistent ethic of life um, that, that says every human being is made in the image of God. And when, when we're losing a hundred lives a day to gun violence, this matters to God. It, and it, it, these are lives that God has created that are being lost. And we can save some of them. I don't think we can save all lives, but we can certainly do better than 105 lives every day lost to gun violence. That's unprecedented uh, anywhere else in the industrialized world. So um, I think, you know, one of our framing narratives is that people say it's not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. And Mike and I, in beating guns, we say it's both a heart problem and a gun problem. And God heals hearts, but people also change laws. And laws mm-hmm. and policies are meant to protect life, and we can do a better job when it comes to guns. Yeah, that's a great place to end. Thank you both so much for sharing with us, for the book, for all the work that Thank you're doing. You. We Absolutely. really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's yeah. great to meet you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Upside Down Podcast. You can find us at UpsideDownPodcast.com or on Instagram at Upside Down Podcast. I'm Kayla Craig. Thanks for listening.